Welcome to EM Guidewire, your guide to emergency medicine, brought to you by the residents and faculty from Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Core Concepts of Emergency Medicine. Okay, so today we are going to talk about Toxicology 101. Our goals and objectives today are going to be to talk about the basic understanding of the early management of the toxicological patient, discuss some basic pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics, discuss various decontaminant techniques and the roles that they may play. So to start, the father of toxicology, as some of us will call him, is uh, Paracelsus, and he had this quote, all things are poison and nothing is without poison. Only the dose permits something not to be poisonous. And so this is important to remember because theoretically, water can be toxic in the right amount of dose, or oxygen can be toxic in the right dose. So it's important that even though we think of things like on the slide here, we have acetaminophen as being pretty benign, kind of in general treatment for a headache or a body ache, but if we take too much of it, we obviously can have liver failure. So again, that dose becomes very important. So what does toxicology include? I get asked this question a lot when people ask me, what exactly do I do? But it's not just our accidental or intentional overdoses. It also is drug interactions, adverse drug events, occupational exposures, environmental toxins, including inveminations. It also covers the illicit drug use, the withdrawal syndromes, and then any kind of chemical or biological or radiation kind of emergencies. So to start, we have to talk a little bit about chemistry. We gotta go back there. So let's talk about pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. So pharmacokinetics is looking at what the absorption, distribution, metabolism, and excretion um, is happening of a xenobiotic. So a xenobiotic is a substance that's foreign to the human body. So this can be natural or synthetic. So classically, when we talk about this, we're thinking of a drug, but theoretically it could also be a venom from a snake or a spider. It would also be considered a xenobiotic because it's foreign to the body. So pharmacokinetics, looking at the evaluation of that absorption, distribution, metabolism, and excretion, of that xenobiotic. While pharmacodynamics is looking at the relationship of that xenobiotic concentration and the clinical effects. So the way that I like to look at this is that the kinetics is what the body is doing to the drug or the xenobiotic. And dynamics is what the drug is doing to the body. So why that's important is because we can get pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamic studies on various different drugs that we might expose to, but then when they become a toxic amount or we take an overdose of them, we go into something called toxicokinetics and toxicodynamics. So toxicokinetics is now looking at the evaluation of the absorption, distribution, metabolism, and excretion of that particular xenobiotic under a toxic amount, and toxicodynamics is looking at the clinical effects seen with the toxic concentration of that particular drug. So again, in a toxic amount, the kinetics is what the body is doing to the drug, and the dynamics is what the drug is doing to the body. More chemistry, yay! If we continue on, we have to look a little bit at also our kinetics in regards to first order versus zero order kinetics. So first order kinetics are an elimination rate that's proportional to a drug concentration. So that means a consistent percentage is being excreted or metabolized over time. This is classically a semi-logarithmic curve. Zero-order kinetics is an elimination rate that's not dependent on concentration. It's a consistent amount that's excreted. It tends to be a linear curve. Most drugs are going to be eliminated by first order, but there are some prime examples that are zero order. The biggest one I think of in the emergency department is an alcohol. We know that alcohol can be metabolized, depending on what studies you look like, anywhere from 20 to 35 milligrams per hour, right, going down. If you know that and you're using 25, for example, and somebody starts out with an alcohol level of 200 and it's following zero order kinetics, it's going to go 200, 
175, 150, 125, every single hour it's going to come down. Where you take a drug that follows first order kinetics, it's going to be a percentage. So if you have a drug that starts with 100 as it's cut off and it gets uh, eliminated at 20%, in one hour, that's going to be down to 80%. In two hours, that's going to go down to 64 So only 20% of the 80 in the next hour and continued further on. So this is a picture of what we're talking about here. So looking at this slide, on the left-hand side, you're going to see something that's first-order kinetics, that semi-logarithmic curve. And on the right-hand side, you're going to see a zero-order kinetic curve or a straight line going down. Because nothing can be simple, we now have to say, well, what about saturation kinetics? Or what happens in an overdose-type picture? So saturation kinetics is when the active transport processes or our protein binding sites all are overwhelmed. They've all been saturated. So now a lot of times we see a transition from first order kinetics to zero order kinetics, which means our elimination or metabolism occurs now at a set rate. No longer a consistent percentage, but now a set rate. This basically leads to prolonged presence of the compound in the body. This is the reason we can no longer use the five half-life rule people talk about when they say a drug will be fully out of the body in five half-lives. That kind of goes out the window when we talk about overdoses because now we have saturation kinetics. And so we're going to shift a lot of times from first order to zero order and at some point in time actually shift back probably to a first order kinetics. So it gets a little bit confusing. All right, so now that we've got the chemistry out of the way, let's talk about the initial management of that tox patient. So when they come in, what do we need to do about them? So the initial management of any tox patient is like the initial management of any patient in the emergency department. ABC, airway, breathing, circulation. We're rapidly assessing that patient, and we're looking for those immediately correctable causes. So are they hypoxic? Are they hypoglycemic? Are they hypotensive? Is there an obvious dysrhythmia? Fix the things that you can fix immediately when you see that patient and you're kind of stabilizing them. As we continue on and we're looking at the patient, now we're going to look for a clear toxidrome. Is one present? Do I recognize a toxidrome in this patient? If so, do I have something that can treat it? And we're going to talk about our toxidromes um, a little bit later in this lecture. And then we want to get a history. So who do we get our history from? We obviously can get it from the patient. We can get it from the bystanders. We can get it from EMS or family or anybody who might have been on the scene. We can see what do we see about the patient, what do we smell around the patient. So we're collecting a lot of different sources from history because a lot of times these people are unable to provide a history themselves. And then we're going to perform something called a risk assessment. And we're going to talk about that in just a slide and how we kind of want to evaluate now what we know about that patient based on their physical exam and on the drug that they may have taken. While we're doing this, we're also contemplating what kind of decontamination or enhanced elimination techniques might be necessary for this type of overdose. Looking at our physical exam, it sounds funny that I need to give you a physical exam slide when I'm talking about the tox patient, but there are some very specific things about the physical exam that could be helpful to a toxicologist. So I like knowing if my pupils are big or small. I like knowing what my skin's doing. Is it wet? Is it dry? Does it look flush? Are there track marks there? Are we breathing really fast? Are we breathing really slow? Do we have bowel sounds? Do we not have bowel sounds? And particularly that neurological exam. So do they have clonus? Do they have tremor? What's their tone like? Are they rigid? Are they flaccid? And then knowing what their temperature is. Are they super high or super low? Because hyperthermic states happen a lot in some of our toxicological syndromes, so that's important to us. General concepts, if I had to say in one slide, general approach to the patient, we're going to talk about supportive care, frequent reassessments, laboratory testing, possibly imaging, and then avoiding tunnel vision. Just because somebody came in with an overdose last time they're here doesn't necessarily mean they have an overdose this time when they're here. And always don't be afraid to ask for help. So calling your local poison center or your toxicological team if you have one at your hospital. Let's get back to that risk assessment I was hinting at. You've looked at the patient, you've done a physical exam, you've gotten a history, and now we need to do a risk assessment. This is the concept that you're going to take into every tox overdose that you see. Say, what is the ingestion or the agent that they were exposed to? What do I know about that agent or that ingestion? What do I know about it in general? And what do I know about it in toxicity? 
Knowing that now, what do you expect to occur? The prime example I like to say is, let's talk about acetaminophen. Okay, I know that in therapeutic doses of acetaminophen, it can be antipyretic, it can help with my pain, right? I'm not super worried about it. But I know that in toxicity, I can now have liver failure, I can then get renal failure, altered mental status, and potentially death. So knowing that, how do I expect that clinical progression to go? They may be kind of asymptomatic and then start having GI symptoms, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea potentially, abdominal pain, and then I expect them to possibly get altered. So I can kind of predict where their clinical progression is going to go. And knowing that, the question then is, what can I do about it? Is there anything I can do about it? And if the answer is yes, I have an antidote, great. Or maybe the answer is no, there's nothing I can do that can prevent that toxicity, but when it happens, what should I do about it? So in the case of acetaminophen, we might say, well, we know that we have N-acetylcysteine or NAC, and we know that we ideally want to give that within eight hours of an ingestion because then we can hopefully prevent any kind of liver toxicity that might happen. So knowing that, that would be how I'd handle that. If I have a drug that perhaps doesn't have an antidote like NAC, perhaps, say, a tricyclic, but I'm worried about them having a widened QRS because of the sodium channel blockade, or I'm worried about dysrhythmias, I will know, like, I don't have an antidote, but when that happens, I'm going to give sodium bicarbonate to try to tighten up or, you know, narrow that QRS. And if they go into dysrhythmic, I know that lidocaine would be my anti-dysrhythmic choice. So thinking through that risk assessment can be really helpful as we approach our tox patients so you can be prepared for how they're going to present and how their clinical status may change in front of you. Then we talk about decontamination. So there's various forms of decontamination. We talk about dermal decontamination, ocular decontamination, or gastrointestinal decontamination. So the first form is dermal exposures. Dermal exposures or dermal decontamination, for the most part, we really want to wash them off with water or saline, whatever available, at least 10 to 15 minutes on the site. Our goal here is a neutral pH. We're going to be giving symptomatic care for any kind of pain that they may have, but we obviously want to get their clothes off them, wash off the skin that was exposed, and try to get back to a neutral pH. Ocular exposures are going to require a copious amount of irrigation with fluids, usually we talk about normal saline, for a minimum of 15 minutes. Again, with the same goal of ensuring a neutral pH. So there's two different ways you can do this. One, you can use a Morgan's lens if it's available to you and be able to place that in the eye, run a liter of fluid through it, flush out the eye, check the pH of the conjunctiva. Or if you don't have a Morgan's lens, you can use the poor man way, which is a nasal tubing. You can place it onto the bridge of their nose and hook it up to a liter of fluid and then let it run through both of the eyes. You're going to have to kind of encourage the patient to keep their eyes open during that because if they squeeze super tight, the water won't get in very well with the nasal cannula. But if they keep their eyes open or you help them, that will work just as well as a Morgan's lens. Gastrointestinal decontamination. So this too has various different mechanisms to it, or different types, I should say. So we talk about syrup of Ibicac, we talk about activated charcoal, multi-dose activated charcoal, gastric lavage, or whole bowel irrigation. Ipecac, in the end, just say no. That's the best thing I can say about that. We know that it stimulates our central vomiting center, and we know that about 90% of people are going to start to vomit within 30 minutes of their ingestion. This used to be recommended by pediatricians to have in every home. Now the rule really is just say no. Thinking on that, we know that it has a ton of contraindications. So acid, alkaline ingestions, less than six months old. If you expect them to have a depressed mental status, if they don't have a gag, ingested objects, or non-toxic ingestions in the children, lots of reasons not to give it. And overall, the American Academy of Toxicology would tell you that it should not be routinely given in any poisoned patient. 
activated charcoal. This is probably the most common one that we use in the emergency department and probably the most frequent one that you'll see used. Activated charcoal is a very effective absorbent. It's secondary to, it's got varying sizes of pores that create kind of a large surface area to absorb the agent that you're looking for. The absorption ability of activated charcoal is related to the time from ingestion and the quantity that was administered or ingested. We have a recommended dose that is usually one gram per kilo or a 10 to one activated charcoal to xenobiotic ratio. That being said, it often comes in 50 gram bottles, and so people end up with 50 grams or 100 grams of it. We also classically talk about being given within the first one hour of an ingestion. Overall, activated charcoal is relatively safe. It does have some side effects. Most of them are vomiting, diarrhea, some constipation, and, and potentially aspiration. It also has some contraindications, so if you think that they have a perforation in their GI tract. If you're concerned that you need to look down their airway or their esophagus for any reason, you probably shouldn't make it black. Okay, so it's not easy to intubate a black airway, nor is it easy for someone to go behind you and do an EGD um, kind of after they've had charcoal. If they have a decreased mental status or a weak gag, if they're profusely vomiting in front of you, or if they've taken something that's not absorbed by charcoal. So what sort of things are not absorbed by charcoal? So metals are the biggest one that we talk about. So in that list comes iron, lithium, lead. Um, we also worry about some of our other inorganics. Our hydrocarbons or our alcohols are not very well absorbed. Our solvents are not very well absorbed. Um, so when we think about that, if they ingested lead or they ingested a lithium overdose, activated charcoal really should just be taken off the table because it's not going to bind anyways. So what about multi-dose activated charcoal? So multi-dose activated charcoal works through three different mechanisms. One is thought that it actually interrupts something called enterohepatic recirculation, meaning that you ingest the drug and it kind of processes through your liver and it comes back into the GI tract. And as it's continuing to process through, you get multiple chances of trying to kind of grab it with the activated charcoal or you get something called GI dialysis. So you're able to pull the drug, you know, from the serum back into the GI tract and absorb more. And then also we worry that you're going to, able to then be able to bind a larger amount um, of the toxin than a single dose because you're giving it multiple times. The doses here are usually typically smaller. So we're talking about 0.25 to 0.5 grams per kilo. Uh, we're usually giving them every four hours or so. There's only certain drugs that we talk about multi-dose activated charcoal for. It's a, a reasonably small list, but we can think about it. Things on that list are going to be things like our quinine or potentially some of our um, quinine derivatives, phenobarbital, theophylline, salicylates, carmazepine, and dapsone. So what is our overall kind of academic um, affiliations say about this. So the American Academy of Clinical Toxicology would tell you that single-dose activated charcoal should not be administered routinely in the management of poison patients. And part of this is because we don't have great studies that it decreases morbidity and mortality of patients. We have plenty of studies that show it does a good job of absorbing the agents, but it's a difficult study to prove that it has decreased morbidity and mortality. It may be considered, though, however, if somebody has ingested a potentially toxic amount of a poison, we often talk about one hour up to presentation. That's a tough hour to get when you think about it. By the time somebody takes something, gets to medical care, you know, gets into the ED and talks to you, you may be well past that hour. So I think that it's fair to say that the, the test answer or the book answer would say one hour, but most people in clinical practice usually kind of extend that up to about two hours, and there are some agents that we even go further on that if they are a sustained release or an extended release, or perhaps it was also ingested with another drug that slows down your gut motility. Yes, I'm coming back to those bowel sounds. I know you didn't really want to listen to them, but I do care if they're there or not there. That may be a reason to have delayed activated charcoal given as well. 
What about gastric lavage? So this is when you watch the TV shows and the movies and they say, oh, man, they got their stomach pumped, right? This is really what they're referring to. They're referring to gastric lavage. So the goal here is a procedure to remove the xenobiotic components from the stomach before they can then get absorbed. It's a kind of a brutal process if you've ever seen it done. So it involves something called an Ewald tube. So think a garden hose. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, kids, a garden hose. Really, really big OG tube. Shove down your throat. Put the patient in the left lateral decubitus position. And then you want to flush it out with some saline and then drain it to gravity. And your goal here is to try to pull out any pill fragments. That's why you need a really big tube. Because if you look at our NG tubes or OG tubes that we usually use, the holes on the bottom of them are not very big. They're probably not going to be big enough for pill fragments to come back through. So that's why we talk about the E-wall tube, which is a, a big tube that's really about the size of a garden hose. Now, that being said, you can automatically think that, hmm, there's going to be some problems here. I could perforate pretty easily. Um, maybe I should control their airway before I do that. So it's not something we commonly do very often. That being said, I'm referring to pill ingestions and gastric lavage. If somebody were to have taken something that was a liquid, then you may have a higher success rate, or you might actually consider a gastric lavage more often because a small NG tube or a normal-sized OG tube could easily be placed and then pump out their stomach if I'm looking for a liquid versus the I'm having my stomach pumped when I'm really talking about gastric lavage for pill fragments. So what does our American Academy of Clinical Toxicology say about gastric lavage? So it, too, should not be routinely employed in the management of our poisoned patients. There's been no evidence that has shown it has improved clinical outcome, and we do know that it could cause significant morbidity, as we just talked about. So it really should not be considered unless a patient has a potentially life-threatening amount of a poison and the procedure can be done within 60 minutes and it's an ingestion that we really don't have any other treatments for. The prime example I talk about here a lot of times is colchicine. So colchicine, I don't have a good antidote for it. I can support you through it. But if you get enough of it in your system, unfortunately, you are probably going to die. So if I can get it out of your stomach quickly then that may be a, a thought that I may potentially claim for something like colchicine. All right, whole bowel irrigation. So whole bowel irrigation is OG or NG administration of a large amount of osmotically balanced polyethylene glycol electrolyte solution, PEG solution. Think, go lightly. So the goal here is to get about two liters per hour as a rate, and you're giving it until, quote, their rectal effluent is clear. That sounds really pleasant, I know. But our goal is to kind of remove the xenobiotic from the GI tract to prevent any further absorption that they may have. So reasons we would not do whole bowel irrigation. Obviously, if we've done that risk assessment and they have a depressed mental status or a, a weak or no gag present, if you're concerned that their GI tract may not be intact, so they've got a perforation or severe distension and no bowel sounds, or they have a GI hemorrhage in front of you. If they are persistently vomiting, it's probably not a great idea to shove two liters of fluid an hour down their throat. So just keep that in mind. And then the other thing we talk about is if we know there's leakage of packets. And what I mean by there is body packers versus body stuffers. If we think that a body packer's packages are starting to leak, we probably shouldn't give whole bowel irrigation. This is a pretty labor-intensive process, so the nurses are not going to be super happy about this when you ask them to do it. But there are some indications on why we may or may not do this. The way I like to think about this is body packers are classically our mules that we talk about. These are the people who usually have pretty pure drug and are bringing it across border lines. So they know exactly how many packets they swallowed because somebody on the other side is waiting for them to poop out exactly 32 packets or 27 packets, whatever they swallowed. They're usually packaged pretty well, usually double condomed um, and kind of stacked right on in there. You sometimes can see them on an x-ray. You potentially can see them on a CAT scan as well. These people have very, very pure drug inside of them. 
The body stuffers are the people who got in trouble. So the police are coming, mom and dad are catching you, all of a sudden you're caught off guard. So this time you are not going to stuff the drug into any orifice that you have. You may swallow it, you may put it up your rectum, you may put it into your vagina, you may stuff it up your nose. Any orifice you got, you're going to stuff it in there. This is not pure drug, okay? This is now something that's being used on the street, um, but these are also not packaged very well. So, that being said, body packers, think like you're packing for a trip, you're taking your time, you're packing suitcases, stacking them out there. Body stuffers is the, hey, do you want to go to the beach with me, like, in an hour? You're stuffing something into a bag, you're moving very quick, um, and it may not be packaged very well. So, who is going to get more sick? Probably your body stuffer, right? Because more likely that that drug or that packaging is going to open and you're going to expose to it. But who has a higher chance of dying? Probably your body packer. Because if one of those packets opened, you got 100% pure heroin or cocaine going right into your gut lining, and we're going to have a problem. So the American Academy of Clinical Toxicology, they have an opinion on everything. Their opinion today is that whole bowel irrigation should not be used routinely in the management of the poison patient, but that it could be considered in the potentially toxic ingestion of sustained release and coated drugs uh, in patients presenting more than two hours after a drug ingestion. So we're past the stomach, now we're down into the bowel, we're trying to push it through. It also could be considered for people who ingested packets of illicit drugs as an indication to help them pass them through as well. So the GI decon take-home message. The book or test answer would tell you that if it's in one hour, that's kind of the ideal time to do it. Like I said, clinically, most people probably extend that out to two hours. And the right case, you would then talk about maybe using multi-dose or something further than that. If the patient's awake, alert, and cooperative, you probably can start to try some charcoal. If they're sedated, they have a change in mental status, but you think charcoal may be helpful, you might consider maybe intubation, airway protection, and then an NG or an OG tube with charcoal down it. And then there are special cases for the uses of gastric lavage and whole bowel irrigation. So what about enhanced elimination? So this really consists of three main things, hemodialysis, bicarbonate therapy, or IV fluid hydration. So hemodialysis, I wish every drug could be dialyzed. It would make my job really easy, right? Because I just say, oh, they took that drug, you should probably dialyze them. Unfortunately, I don't get to do that. The goal here is to remove that xenobiotic through hemodialysis. So what makes a drug dialyzable? It's got to have a volume and distribution less than one. It's got to have low molecular weight and a low protein binding. Well, that makes sense. If it's bound to lots of protein, it's probably not going to be able to come out through dialysis. If it's got a big molecule, it's probably not going to be able to come out through the dialysis. Um, and if it's not in the serum in the blood that I'm dialyzing, it's got this large volume distribution, probably not going to get very much out through dialysis. Other reasons that we do hemodialysis for the tox patient. While not all drugs are dialyzable, some effects of the drugs may cause a reason for dialysis. These being things like fluid overload, renal failure, or uremia, poor urine output, severe acid-base dysfunction, or severe electrolyte dysfunctions, secondary to drug toxicity, might be an indication for hemodialysis. So what are some commonly dialyzable drugs? Some of these make normal sense to you. You've heard about salicylates or maybe lithium or toxic alcohols, methanol, ethylene glycol. Other ones we talk about is maybe INH, uh, carmazepine, um, our metformin, but it's not really the metformin that we're dialyzing. It's the severe lactic acidosis that can happen with it. So there's a lot of drugs that we kind of consider as commonly dialyzable drugs. Bicarbonate therapy. The goal of bicarbonate therapy is to alkalize the urine or the serum. How do we do it? We either talk about giving boluses of bicarb or we talk about an infusion, which is three amps of sodium bicarb in D5W. When do we use it? There's multiple indications, but the two main ones we think of are tricyclic antidepressants or salicylate toxicity. Two reasons why we do it, and we use it differently for both of these drugs. In the case of a TCA, that's a sodium channel blocking agent. And so what I'm trying to do by giving you boluses of sodium bicarbonate 
is to kind of overwhelm the blockade that you're having in your soda channels and tighten up that QRS, narrow that interval. Salicylates, I'm trying to alkalize your urine because I'm trying to get your salicylate to be trapped in your renal tubules and then allow you to excrete it through your renal tubules and it can't cross the barriers then. Therefore, if you're alkalized, we're able to keep it in the urine and you can get rid of it faster. Different uses of bicarbonate, but the same goal in trying to kind of treat the underlying toxicity of the drug. What about just good old IV fluids? So I put that up there as another reason we can have enhanced elimination. And so the main thing here is we're resuscitating or maintenance fluids for these people. We really want to have an adequate urine output. Xenobiotics often are excreted through the kidneys. Well, to get that done, you need the kidneys to be working. And to be working, they need to be perfused. So we need to be giving them lots and lots of fluid so that they are able to kind of perfuse those kidneys and make sure that they're working at their tip-top shape. That being said, people will automatically say, well, why don't we just give them some kind of forced diuresis or a diuretic? But unfortunately, the studies have shown that those have really not been helpful, that in general, we just want to make sure we're giving enough fluid to keep the kidneys well perfused and doing their job. What about laboratory testing, right? Toxic people come in and we say, what test should we get on? What laboratory testing should we get on them? And this is difficult because a little bit depends on the type of overdose and the exposure, but there's a few things for sure that we probably want to check on our tox patients. The biggest one being your CHEM-8 or your SCREEN-8 or your BMP, depending on what your hospital calls it. And looking at that, we're really looking at our renal function and looking to see if we have an anion gap. So how do we calculate an anion gap, guys? Yep, that's right. I know you all know the answer. So it's going to be sodium minus our chloride plus our bicarb. And normal is 12 plus or minus 4. We really care about that classic metabolic acidosis, that anion gap metabolic acidosis, right? So you've all heard mud piles before. That's our mnemonic of the possible causes. And so M is going to be our methanol or potentially our metformin. U is our uremia. D is our DKA. And I like to throw AKA in on there as well. P is our peraldehyde or fenformin. I is our ionized iron or inhalants, L is our lactate, E is our ethylene glycol, and S is our salicylates. We probably need to kind of force that to memory our mud piles. What about other labs? So I have um, some up here with some question marks next to them. So the first one we'll talk about is that liver functions. I don't think every tox patient needs liver function testing. But if you think that they might have been in acetaminophen or taking a drug that might have caused liver dysfunction, this might be a, a reasonable uh, test for them. The acetaminophen level, you never really can go wrong with checking one of these. Acetaminophen can be asymptomatic when they initially present, and so we talk about pretty much getting an acetaminophen level on every overdose that you have because you want to try to diagnose that early so that you're then able to give them NAC therapy if it's indicated. What about a salicylate level? I would say that it's in the majority of our check boxes on our order sets for the drug screen, and so that's fine. I feel like it's a fair test to get everybody, but it is important to realize that aspirin toxicity is not asymptomatic where acetaminophen toxicity can be asymptomatic, salicylate toxicity acutely, they don't look super well, right? They've got a respiratory rate that's increased in the 40s, 50s, 60s. They look like they're uncomfortable. So usually we should clinically be able to kind of get a suggestion that this patient may be aspirin toxic. But that being said, I think an aspirin level is a fair um, order to get on your tox patients. Specific drug levels. So if people are on a drug that is levelable in a quick amount of turnaround time that may be related to why they're here, I would suggest you should probably check it. If they take digoxin and they were playing basketball and sprained their ankle, I don't really need a dig level. But if they take digoxin and they came in because they're dizzy and they passed out or they're short of breath or they have chest pain, probably should check a dig level on that patient. Potentially their serum osmolarity might be helpful for us as well. That comes into play when we start talking about our toxic alcohols and we want to know what their calculated versus their serum osmolarity might be doing. That will help us create an osmol gap. That may be something you want to indicate or check as well. 
and then the good old urine drug screen. You'll see I also have a question mark next to that one. The reason I have a question mark next to that one is because I don't think it's a very good test, I'll be honest. It's kind of expensive and it doesn't really tell me much. I shouldn't need a urine drug screen test in the ED to tell me if you are toxic on an opioid or if you're in opiate withdrawal. I shouldn't need one to tell me if you're toxic on a synthetomimetic or a benzodiazepine or a barbiturate, right? And I don't really care that much if you have THC in your system. The thing about the UDS is that it's got a lot of false positives and a lot of false negatives. So you need to know what your UDS tests for. And it's important to know that really most things you can be talked out of in court, except for probably a positive cocaine. If you've got a positive cocaine, you probably used cocaine. Everything else, hmm, there's a lot of false positive and negatives there. So just take it with a grain of salt. Here's a list of some of those useful drug concentrations that we just talked about. So again, I wouldn't necessarily get these on all your patients, but if they're on this drug and it's something related to their complaint or you are concerned about this overdose, this might be a drug level you get, like acetaminophen, methanol, lithium, iron, lead, uh, ethylene glycol, you know, digoxin, things of this nature depend on possibly getting them on the clinical picture or on the history that you get. All right, what about that EKG? All your tox patients should get an EKG. So when we check an EKG from a toxicology standpoint, obviously we are concerned for cardiac dysrhythmias, we're still looking for signs of ischemia, and we care a lot about those intervals. Telling me that somebody has a normal QRS or a normal QTC, I'm probably going to follow up with that with, well, how long is it? Because I really want to know. A normal QRS is 60 to 100 milliseconds. But anything that is prolonged past that can be suggestive of a sodium channel blocking agent. So that's why we start to get that widened QRS. A normal QTC depends on whether you're male or female. So we classically talk about being less than 440 milliseconds in men and less than 460 milliseconds in women. And if you have a prolonged QTC, that's suggestive of a potassium channel blocking agent. That's why those intervals and the actual numbers are really important when we're looking at the EKG. What about imaging or x-rays? I would not say that every tox patient needs some form of imaging or x-ray, but depending on what their clinical picture looks like or what ingestion you might be afraid of, there may be some value. So that chest x-ray, perhaps if they're in respiratory distress, or if they're tachypneic, you might be worried maybe about salicylates. If they have fluid overload or rails, maybe they have a cholinergic syndrome going on. Or if you're worried about perforation or free air because they took a caustic, that might be an indication to get a chest x-ray. An abdominal x-ray might help you with uh, radio-opaque foreign bodies. It might help you potentially with the body packer. Uh, it could also tell us about perforation or free air. And it might be helpful in ingestion of metals. Delayed presentations. So again, it'd be really easy if all tox presentations were, hey, you're going to get sick within six hours of taking your drug. But unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. Various ingestions can have a delayed presentation. So initially, the patient comes in. They say they took something. They look great. You think, oh, they can totally go home. But you have to be aware of the ones that cause this delayed presentation because their onset or their worsening symptoms may not happen for more than six hours after their ingestion. So this is a list of some of our more common delayed clinical presentation causes. Iron, acetaminophen, salicylates, lithium, methanol or ethylene glycol, colchicine, sustained release or extended release products, and some of our withdrawal syndromes. Getting to the end here, tox rules to live by. We know that we want to fix our immediate causes. We want to still do our ABCs. We want to check that EKG and know what those intervals are doing. Supportive care is the right answer for everything. And benzodiazepines are probably the right answer for 99% of tox patients, let's be honest. Supportive care and benzos, you're going to answer the tax questions pretty closely there. But remember that we have appropriate antidotes at the appropriate time. We want frequent reassessments with neurological exams. And then we have something called the six-hour observation rule. Now, I have a little star by that because, again, we talked about those delayed presentations. In general, if it's not an extended release or sustained release, 
most things are going to show their symptoms within six hours. So if they're asymptomatic six hours, probably safe to go home. But if it's extended release, delayed release, if it is one of those things on our list of delayed presentations, these people are going to end up needing an admission and more than six-hour observation. Also, if you have any questions, you can always call the Poison Center or your local toxicologist. So this is the North Carolina Poison Center control phone number here. Realize that nationally, the phone number is the same, 800-222-1222. And you can call it from anywhere in the country and you'll get your local Poison Center. All right, that's all I got. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go, be awesome today. CMC out.